This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 51. And the quote of the day is from Frederick Wilcox, who said, progress always involves risks. You can't steal second and keep your foot on first. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, number 51. We've crawled over that 50 mark, and now we're on our way to 100. So thank you so much for that. I hope you guys liked the 50th episode, and let's get to the 51st. And I got Adam Perry here, who plays in the Bloodhound Gang, and he used to be in a band called A, and he is also now the CEO of a company called Band App, and he created this company. And we're going to get all into that about its ways that you can make uh, free apps for yourself and for your band and for anything else that you need it for, which is just an awesome concept. We're going to get all into that. We're also going to talk about some crazy stories with the Bloodhound Gang. We're going to talk about some advice that he has for succeeding in the music industry and for writers and producers and for players and everything. So it's a really, really good interview. And it's great that he had some time to talk. He's from across the pond. He lives in the UK. So it was great for him to take some time to chat today. And plus, a good friend of mine is also in the Bloodhound Gang. So it's kind of cool to get the drummer's take on the Bloodhound Gang rather than my buddy's take, who is the DJ. And also... If you want to get the Stick Control Variations book, it's 11 creative exercises to improve your overall dexterity and some chops and things like that. You can get the book for free. It's normally $9.99. You can get 100% free if you sign up for the mailing list at drummersresource.com. And that's not going to last forever, folks. So if you want to grab that, head on over there. Join the mailing list, get the free book, and you also get free tips and tricks and other information directly to your inbox. So check that out at drummersresource.com. And let's get into this interview. Mr. Adam Perry. Adam, what's happening, man? Thanks so much for doing this interview. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, good, good, to, good to speak to you. Apologies for my voice, by the way. Um, this is a good day. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievably. <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully you can hear what I'm saying. And I'll try to talk very slowly because... As a British person, tend to speak very fast. Right. It's funny, man. I uh, so I have family in Italy, and I speak Italian, and then I go over, you know. But then I get to Italy, and they talk a hundred times faster than I can, and I'm like, "What? What? Can you?" Oh, it's amazing. I'm like, yeah. "Wait, wait, wait! You got to slow down a little bit." Yeah, it's amazing. I, mean, we, I know a, a Spanish guy really well, and um, he talks as slow as he, he can possibly talk. In you know. For a Spaniard, obviously, they talk very fast. But as soon as he mentions a football team like Barcelona or Real Madrid, he says the name of the team 50 times faster than anybody else in the world can. <laughs> so if you're talking very slowly, like, I am from Spain, blah, 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 Barcelona. Like, like, what do you say? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, anyway. I don't know, man. It's For some reason, uh, maybe it's because the English language is hard, but, like, but, and especially, like, American English has all these different uh, ethnicities in it and all these different uh, different words from all over the all over the world. I don't know. Maybe that's why we speak slower because we have to think yeah. about it or something. I don't know. I think you've got better weather as well. So you, you can take your time because you know there's not a storm coming. Right. <laughs> Where in England, we know you've got four seasons in one hour. So you've got to make, you've got to make hay where the sun shines. 
That's probably why. And, and as we're talking right now, it's absolutely throwing it down with rain. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, not even five minutes ago, it was 75 degrees and sunny. Jeez. Amazing. Yeah, we've had we had our fair stretch of uh of bad weather with uh over the winter. So Yeah, you had a terrible winter. Yeah. Really <laughs> we we didn't we didn't have a winter at all. We just had a prolonged autumn. Oh, really? We had yeah. prolonged winter. Yeah, we didn't have one day of frost or ice. It never got below freezing. Wow. Which is yeah. Well that's cool. This is, this is very, very, very drummer heavy, isn't it? What's that? Very drummer heavy this talking about weather. Yeah. Well we I taught I uh it's funny because a lot of the interviews for some reason start with us talking about the weather. Really? I did, yeah. there was like nine different there was like nine interviews in a row that we were talking about the weather and I was like <laughs> I guess it's just I don't know, man, it's a pattern and somehow because a lot of times we're in different locations, so yeah, you know, that's how it ends up. We we end up uh, talking about uh you know uh we end, always end up talking about the weather in one way I'm obs- or another. I'm obsessed. I'm, I'm to- totally obsessed with the weather. Yeah. I think, I think most British people are. But if you look at my Facebook or Instagram accounts, it says drummer, bloodhound gang, interests, weather. That's about, <laughs> that's about it. Be- before Arsenal or anything like that, it's weather. Weather. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about some drums. Uh, you've, yeah. been, you've been doing this for a long time, and I always like to get the backstory of how people got started with drumming and and became a professional um so so how did you get into playing in the first place i i started um i mean this is not probably not the best thing to say um because i never really wanted to be a drummer i just wanted to be in a band right and um obviously with this voice there's no chance you're going to be a singer unless you're in motorhead so um so that was out and guitar seemed really hard and i seemed to be able to keep a beat so I started playing drums almost just as an out of necessity to be in a band. And that was when I was 11. Um, and my favourite band back then was a band called The Jam, who were huge in England, probably not so in the States, but they, they led that whole kind of new wave movement along with the police and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the police became huge in the States, but The Jam didn't, even though they were, they were kind of a more seminal band in the UK. What was the name of the band? Uh, the Jam. The Jam? Yeah, they were huge over here. I got it. And um, yeah, they 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 really kind of spearheaded that punk rock, new wave, you know, sort of late seventies, early eighties movement. And uh, so I really got into that, and that was the first show that me and my twin brother Jason went to see when we were eleven years old. Um, it's quite scary, eleven seeing that, and um, and then came away the next day, and that was it. We're like, we've got to start a band. Simple as that. What can we do? So Jason figured out he could sing, which he's been convincing himself he can. <laughs> um, ever since, and uh, and I tried to convince myself I could play drums, uh, and that's how, that's why I started playing drums. And then move, we moved we moved towns from this is a in a city called Leeds, which is in the northern part of England. Mm-hmm. Um, rains every day, very quite cold, and we moved to Suffolk, which is a, a beautiful part of England on the east coast, um, a lot sunnier, slightly warmer, and a lot more laid back. It's in the countryside on on the sea. And um, but everyone down there seemed to be into music, and everyone seemed to be in little bands at school. And the very first person we met when we uh, stepped off the school bus on our first day at the new school was was Mark, who became the guitarist in A. And we, we started a band there, and then on the first day of school, and uh, and that gradually became the band that went on to to be successful. Yeah. So, so, uh, and ha- so you, how old were you when you started A? 
Well, in a, in a different guise, we were 14. And it was called Grand Designs, which is our favourite name from a Rush song. So our favourite band was Rush. Ah, I got My favourite drummer was Neil Peart. And Grand Design sounded like a really nice 80s little name. Right. So we, <laughs> so we, named, we named the band after that. And obviously now it sounds really, you know, pretentious. Right. And, um, <laughs> and we started doing Rush covers. And you can imagine how bad that was as a 14-year-old that knew five drum fills trying to emulate Neil Peart. And, yeah. um yeah, it, it, it's pretty bad. We've got some bad videos out there somewhere to prove it. And then, yeah. And then, <laughs> Man, I want hold on. I, you have videos of them? Yeah, I've got a video of my first drum solo. Um, is it on? I, is it on YouTube or you just have that? No, I've just got it. And it's on. It's not even on VHS. I think it's on Betamax. <laughs> and uh, it's terrible. Yeah, that was age fourteen at the in, in at a school concert. Nice. And uh, yeah, and then we went into um, Limelight or something after that. You can imagine it sounded like falling down the stairs backwards. <laughs> falling like, down the stairs, holding your drums. That's what it sounded like. Like tennis shoes in a dryer. Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. And um, so, that yeah, that was when we were 14. And then we stayed in that band. It's, the core of that band is always myself, my twin brother, Jason, and Mark, our guitarist. And then the three of us had different members join, generally bass, bass players, really, who all, all of them, every bass player was called Steve. Really? I don't know why. Yeah, one Steve would leave, and then a new Steve would join. Then one Steve would join the RAF, then somebody else would. And they're all called Steve. Were they all weird? Yeah. And yeah. All, so five Steves in a row. I'm not, I'm not even making that up. Because <laughs> bass players are notoriously weird, too. Yeah, really weird. Yeah. No offense, bass players, but. <laughs> no offense. Yeah, very strange. And, yeah. and, um, and then we, uh, what happened? We, we, we all left school and went to. Uh, I went to art college and moved to London. Um, age 20 uh and started selling clothes out of a, a bag so walking around london around the, the rainy wet streets of london in deepest darkest winter like a victorian book from charles dickens <laughs> selling, selling clothes out of a bag to record company people and studios to try and find people that we could network with and and, and um and, and it worked really well and then me and jason started our own little studio in a place called Shoreditch in London, which is um, now super, super trendy. It's, it's, you know, it's a little bit like Echo Park in LA, I suppose. It used mm-hmm. to be a bit of a dump, and now it's full of hipsters. And at the time, there was nobody else there, and we started this little studio. Um, we were unemployed at the time. But in England, you get a lot of help if you're unemployed. You get, you get benefits, and you get... If you're entrepreneur, entrepreneurial and you've got that kind of drive to do stuff, which me and Jason certainly had... There's, there's grants and money available to help you. So with, with, with the age of a charity called the Prince's, Business, the Prince's Trust, which I'm um, an ambassador of these days, we were able to set up our first studio. Uh, and we did TV adverts and remixes and that kind of stuff. And Jason really honed his craft as a producer, which he's gone to become a big, big producer these days. Uh, and I sort of, you know, ran a business, my first business doing that. And then from then on, we ended up, just you know, getting a record deal in a really weird way because we we'd done some great demos using our new studio, and um, and things are really coming together. So we decided to go and book our own tour of New York. Um, for some reason, we wanted to go to New York, mm-hmm. so we got the, we got the cheapest flight you could get, which is on Kuwaiti Airlines to JFK. It's about 150 pounds, I think, and um, and got to New York without any equipment and without any shows. 
And then within two days, we booked this five-day stint, CBGBs and other places, uh, and then managed to get a few record labels to come down. And then by the time we got back to London, about two weeks later, um, word seemed to have spread that we, we, we managed to pull this off. And somebody gave us a, a show at the, uh, a venue called The Water Rats in King's Cross area of London. And you remember that band Bush? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and there's a band from Canada called Moist. This is, quite, this is going back quite a way, probably 1995. And um, so they needed another band to add on to the bill. And then this guy heard of our band called A. He thought, ah, this will make the most amazing poster because a poster can say A, Moist, Bush. <laughs> How cool would that be? So the only reason we got on the bill of this show with Bush was because of that. that the guy wanted to make this really good joke. And it's still there in their office today. If you go to um to the offices of that venue, as you walk up the stairs, there's the A Moist Bush nice. poster. But yeah, we ended up getting a, like 19 record labels come down to that. And uh we had seven offers, seven offers the next day. They went nuts for this big, you know, super, super fashionable label kind of chase. And we in the end we we named our own record deal really and just wrote it on a fax and Fax it back to labels and this is what we want. And um and, and we got it. It's like we want snowboarding holidays, Lake Tahoe. We want two firm deal. We want you know X thousands for an advance. We want to go on tour with Faith No More starting on Monday. <laughs> all this stuff. And we got it all. It was amazing. So, really? Yeah, the first tour we did was with Faith No More around Europe. It's nice. Yeah, it was amazing. Um if only it was like that these days. Right. <laughs> so um, <laughs> That's how we got started, and that's how we got a record deal because of Bush and that poster. I mean, we did a good show. You know, we we, we were good. Don't get me wrong, but um, if it wasn't for that poster, we would have never gotten the bill, and we wouldn't have played to all those labels. Right. Yeah. So that's how that's how A started, and that's how we ended up signing to Warner's. You know, it reminds me of I interviewed um, the drummer Lil John Roberts, and he was his big thing was you have to hustle to be heard, and yeah. And I like that that you guys showed that initiative, and that just proves that you know hustling and, and hard work pays off, and you can't just sit around and and wait for somebody to to find you. You have to go out and and let yourself be found, so to speak. Yeah, totally. And I mean, from our perspective, we've always been quite friendly, and we've we've never tried to we've never burnt any bridges. We've never tried to be rock stars or smash dressing rooms up or throw TVs at hotels. Mm-hmm. And e- even now, I can. I can I can reach back through my contact book, and there'll be people still willing to pick up the phone because we've crossed paths at some point and had a good time and talked about the weather, right. and, and not pissed anyone off. Right, right. And um, it, it's amazing the the difference that makes. Uh, so I completely agree. It's about it's about networking. I think the only the only sort of caveat to that is um, you can't really sort of force your music on people. I think if bands do that, you're on a hiding to nothing really. No one's going to really care. Um, people have got to find it organically. You've got to, you've got to join all the dots to them and, and let it be found, but you can't force it on people and say, look, we want to be the next big thing. What do you think? Because mm-hmm. no one really cares anymore. Um, but if you're good enough and your songs are great, those opportunities will come if, you, if you've got built up the right network. And that's that's definitely what we found, and we're still finding it today. Right. Now, I'm I'm more familiar, obviously, with your work uh, with Bloodhound Gang through, you know, I'm friends with Harry, who's in the Bloodhound Gang. And, yeah. Um, I met you. You know, I don't know if you remember, or I don't know if you know this or not, but you and I actually have met. We met at, um, where were we? We were in 
in Maryland a couple of years ago. Oh, uh, right, yeah. No, we did those four warm-up shows before we went to Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was at, yeah. I, for, I forget what the place was called. And the and the guy that owned, I love that Harry told me the guy that owned the club said, he, he goes to Harry, he said, uh, he goes, man, he said, you guys are great, man. You always fill the place. You know, it's all, it's always packed. He was like, you're not very talented, but, <laughs> but you always pack the place. And Harry's like, uh, thanks. <laughs> like, he's like, what the hell is that supposed to be? That's the biggest backhanded compliment that you know, yeah, He's like, what the hell? Yeah. That? That's amazing. He has got a point though. Uh, I don't know, man. That's a, yeah. I, lo- I love that band though. I, yeah, I mean, I, it's weird because I, I, re- you know, like I grew up listening to Bloodhound Gang just from knowing Harry. And, and I remember actually when it was like, oh, Harry got the, signed to this deal. You know, I think it was, I forget who it was with at the time. You Geffen, know, was it? Yeah, it was with Geffen. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, oh, he signed with this band. And and we, everybody was kind of like, I don't even know what that means. You know, it was mm-hmm. a, years ago. And uh, and I'm a lot younger, not a lot younger, but I think I'm about six years younger than him. So, yeah. Um, but just hearing that. So I'm, I'm really familiar with the with the Bloodhound Gang stuff. And but I'm not as familiar with a. Um, yeah. A, like, well, I, how big how big was that band? We we had we had something that no one you, you, you'll never get now. So we had um, we had a record label that tried to drop us two or three times. And then we would literally go back in and say, oh, come on, don't please. Look at the artwork for the next single. Look how cool it is. And they go, oh, yeah, all right. You've got a point. And not droppers. And that happened like two or three times. Like these days, they'd look at the numbers and just drop you because they're not charities. You know, they're not idiots. But we just amassed this huge debt and they just kept letting us go, get away with it. So we, we had three albums that didn't do a thing. I mean, imagine that these days. And we toured the world and um, it was like one big school trip. It's just us and our mates became our crew. We've gone on to be super successful, like Dom's a tour manager of Muse, Bob's Iron Maiden's LD. Like they're all our mates from, from our local town that started, you know, teching for A, and and then we all went on to do do good, good stuff. But it it was it was really amazing. And we um so from '96 until 2002, we didn't get played on the radio at all, and uh, we didn't have a hit. And we built this sort of core following from playing live and supporting anyone we can support, opening, as, as you call it in the States. For any band, we'd be the opening band for any band that was coming to the UK or in Europe. Uh, and then one of those bands happened to be Bloodhound Gang, who I'd never really heard of. And when you know our agent said you should go see them, they played at the Garage in, in, um, in London, okay, mm-hmm. which is, you know, 800 capacity hall, like pretty small. Um, so I went to see them. I thought Jim was really cool and funny and, you know, really enjoyed the show and then about a week later it was confirmed that they wanted to take us on tour and knowing what i know now about the way bloodhound gang works it's really personable it's not it's not a management decision it's not a label decision it's down to jim right and, and lupus and the, and the rest, rest of the guys in the band at that point um so they really liked a they, we had a song called old folks which was becoming a bit of a hit in in germany and most of this tour was kind of german centric so it made sense to take us out. And from the very first day, we just hit it off. We just became best friends. Like, and it's, you know, the best band we've ever toured with. And we, we, used, we were used to opening at that point. We'd been on tour with some really cool bands and some not-so-cool bands. And we'd learned the rules of the road. We'd learned how to treat people, how not to treat people. But Bloodhound Gang and their crew and their manager, tour manager at the time 
really looked after us and, and went out for us and, and seemed to really enjoy our company and our music and supported us. And, and surely, you know, throughout, the, throughout that tour, we, we started picking up big, big plays on radio and on MTV and stuff. And it, it later transpired it's because of the Bloodhound Gang talking about us and, and helping spread the word to industry people. Mm-hmm. And um, and then joining us on stage so that the crowd might not be that into it, but if Jim comes out and plays guitar for a song, or the two crew guys, or Harry comes out and and, and jumps up and down, the crowd are going to be into it. And that's you know that's a really good thing that you can do for an opening band is show the crowd out there that you dig them. And they did it every night, and and we ended up having a real sort of successful album in in Europe off the back of that tour. So obviously we, we we remained really good friends, and then we got the US tour with them. I mean, we we probably did a full year of touring in the states on and off with Bloodhound Gang, uh, and signed to our American label, um, Hollywood Records, Disney, um, because of that tour. So we became really good friends, and then they all came over to our weddings, and we all got married. And uh, and in two thousand and two, uh, we released a record called Hi Fi Serious, and there's a song on there called Nothing. Um, and that went on to be huge for us. It was a massive hit in the UK. So it's like our first big like, top five single. And then we had a song called Starbucks on that album, which was in the top 40 in the UK for six months, which nice. hardly, hardly ever happens because England is so cyclic. Things happen really fast. You know, you, one mm-hmm. minute you're, you're, you're the next big thing, next minute no one cares. In the States, it's a lot longer than that. It's a lot more drawn out. You have more longevity in England. It's very faddy. Very, it's all about fashion, you know, and, and what's current and what's not. And um, yeah, so we we had a, we had a really successful album in two thousand two, uh, and um, and then we sort of committed the cardinal sin really of becoming exhausted from touring the album, and, and um, we wanted some time off, I suppose. So it took quite a while to write our next album, and then there were various changes at the label, and we. We went to Seattle and recorded with with a guy called Terry Day, who's a big producer, Soundgarden, and Limp Biscuit, Deftones, all that good stuff. So we spent twelve weeks in Seattle and spent a fortune recording this record with Terry Day, and then that came out in England and no one cared. <laughs> it's like, all right, <laughs> <laughs> gone from having the most played song on Radio One, which is BBC Radio One, is is everything in the UK, to not getting one play in three years. And that's the way it works in England. You know, it can go from being, you know, huge to no one really caring and giving you a second chance, which is fine. I, I actually like that. It keeps things fresh. Um, but at the time, it was, it, was, it was difficult. And we spent so long making that record. It's our own fault, really. Right. We just, we just took too long and we got caught up in all the other stuff that bands get caught up in. Um, we didn't really know what kind of record to make. We, we started chasing our hit which is the worst thing you can do. And, and I think personally, we started, we made a record that we felt the label and our management and everybody else wanted to hear rather than the record we should have made. Right. Um, yeah, so it, it was uh, around that time, 2005, we got dropped. And rightly so, I suppose, because we were 1.7 million pounds in the hole. Jeez. So $2.1 million dollars. I got my royalty statement about two or three months ago, 1.65 million pounds in, in the hole. Imagine that these days. Wow. So you've got to be thankful that someone funded your life for 10 years to that tune. Yeah. Uh, it never happened these days. And um, yeah, and um, so we, what we decided to do was um, myself and Jason and Dan, 
the bass player, I decided to manage those two as writers and write for other bands um, because we still could write great songs, but we sort of felt like our kind of A um, badge of honour and used upon its favours, which is sometimes happens in bands. But our songs in the right hands could be huge hits. Right. So we started writing for a big band in the UK called Busted and then a massive band called McFly, who were like a big boy band, who just headlined Hyde Park on Saturday. Hmm. 55,000 people. Nice. Um, and just did five nights, uh, four nights at the O2, which is 25,000 each in, in, in May. 42 arenas in the UK. So they're one of the biggest bands in the UK now. And so we, Jason and Dan started writing. I feel songs. like I've, I've seen those guys. Yeah, they, they, they did some stuff in the States. Didn't really, didn't really take off, but... And, um, and, and I, I manage them. And um, obviously being very entrepreneurial and, and always looking to do other businesses as well, I managed those two and another guy called Julian that was part of that team. And we ended up having five UK number ones and 11 top 10 singles, which awesome. is amazing. Yeah, so that was that. That was great. And then me and Jason started a record label on top of that that went for Universal called Medical Records. And I signed an artist called Matthew P that I managed and signed him to Polydor. So I really got into the management side of it for two, three years. And then the Bloodhound Gang's tour manager at the time called me and said, um, Billy's just left. And, and Billy was a really good friend of mine and an amazing drummer, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, but Billy just, for some reason or another, just had enough. You know, and, and touring for a long time can do that to you. You can just think, oh, do you know what? That's it. I'm done. And um, so I think Billy just, just said, I'm done. And that's it. And, and, and sort of walked away um, with his head held high. And everyone was still obviously very friends, very friendly. And I think, you know, everyone's really good friends with Billy to this day. And he's an amazing drummer. And I just couldn't believe that I got the phone call. So I was like, what, why are you phoning somebody who's not that great? You know, the drum tech of Bloodhound Gang is better than me. <laughs> it really is. Like Ken, Kenny is one of the best drummers I've ever heard. Um, he, he's been in a couple of big bands before and, and then he started teching and um, amazing drummer. And um, But yeah, Jim's like, look, we want you. We, we, you know, we, we're friends. So let, let's go and have fun. So I joined Bloodhound Gang in 2006 for a three-week arena tour of the UK. Uh, and I'm uh, sorry, of, of Europe, not the UK. And still in the band today. So that was 2006. That's mm. how I ended up being in the band. And it was an amazing time. We headlined Rock and Ring, in Germany, we did arenas all over Europe, um, multiple festivals, like 25 festivals, headline most of those. And that, that tour lasted about two years on and off. Right. That, that was the, uh, yeah, a really good tour. That was Foxtrot Uniform, Charlie Kilo album um, single that we toured with. So, yeah, it was great. Really cool. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then still on and off, been touring for the last sort of seven years, really. Right. Yeah, I... Uh... I think my I think my name was in that hat for for a short time when they were oh, uh, yeah when they were looking for a new drummer. Oh man! Yeah, I, yeah I, you I stole probably, my yeah. gig. You suck. <laughs> no, do you know what? You, you're, you're thankful you didn't get it. You know, when, 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 you, when you get deported from Russia. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Oh man, that could have been you, Nick. I know, I know. So let's. I want to. Sorry about that. I, 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 oh, I dude! I think. Show. I think if when you were saying before that you know that the, all the decisions come down to, you know, to lupus and uh, we're at the time it was lupus and, yeah. and Jimmy. Um, and Harry just called me and asked me if I'd be interested 
you know, in, in doing it. And I said, yeah. And he was like, well, I'll throw your name in the hat. You know, he was like, ultimately, he kind of, you know, shared the same sentiments that, you know, Jimmy's probably going to be the guy that picks it, but, and he has a couple guys, if they don't work out, you know, then maybe we'll call you. So he called me, asked me if I was interested. I told him absolutely. And then, you know, it didn't come through, but that's, Hey man, yeah. I'm glad oh. you got it. I'm, I'm glad somebody <laughs> cool got it. So I feel really bad now. Oh, dude, no, and no, also, no. You know, you you are without doubt way, way, way better. Oh, get drums, out of here. On drums than I am, you know. So, you know, I I just get by on managing to keep in time and, <laughs> and not piss people off. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I please do not feel bad. I I wasn't bringing it up for that. I just thought it was it was funny. There's some big names in that hat. I I can't. I still can't believe I got the gig. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the great things about Bloodhound Gang is, you know, it, it, it's a real family and it's about friendships first and foremost, where a lot of bands are not about that. And that's why Bloodhound Gang is still a touring concern and people still pay to go and see them. It's great. Right, right. And that's, what, you know, he, um, and I know that they were saying, because I, well, that's, this is with any band, you know, it's not just hiring the drummer, but it's hiring the relationship and the friendship because you got to live with this person on a tour bus and yeah. you have to, you know, if they're a jerk, it doesn't matter how good they are. And also they, you know, you know my track record of being the tidiest man in Europe helps because <laughs> they know everyone could just leave crap all over the bus and I'm just going to come across and, and tidy up, you know, and make sure things are neat and tidy. Right. Right. And uh, I'm sure I was hired because of that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to live with a slob, man. No. No, yeah. and you know, and my willingness to make coffee for everyone and make tea. There you go. All that stuff. It helps. There but you yeah, go. yeah, you're right. It's um, you, you got to be able to get on. You, you got to be able to get on together because you're living in a submarine for most of the year. Right, right. Well, you're not technically, you know, it's right. technically a bus, but <laughs> feels it feels like a submarine. Wait a minute, you guys tour in a submarine? Yeah. No, but we should do. I think I think I'm a, a, you know that's a good startup right there. <laughs> yeah, submarine tour buses. Yeah, or tour happen. subs. Yeah. Nice. Yellow Submarine Inc. Yeah, we might be on to something here. <laughs> I like it. So, the, all right. So when you, I, I, I guess you already knew about like the stage antics and all that stuff with Bloodhound Gang before you joined. Yeah. So it wasn't that much of a shock? No, the only, the only shock was when we did Rock Hammer Ring, it was the first time Jim had been um, pissed on by Jared. Right. Uh, and I was in the firing line. Uh. So it, uh, Jared did that into Jim's baseball cap. And then he put it on his head in front of my riser and it arcs. You can imagine this big kind of, you know, arc of urine going through the strobe light. It's a landing <laughs> in between my two crash cymbals. Uh, so you, you sort of learn to live with that and make sure that your drum tech holds the towel out at that point right. to, you know, to make a roof, a false roof of a towel, you know, with, with a towel. So that, that was a bit of a shock the first night. Uh, and then it went downhill from there, really. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's got worse and worse. <laughs> so and more, more things happened, and more and more things happened. You, you can't make up. So the so the uh, maybe the listeners don't know, but talk about some of the stage antics that go on. Well, I think the, the best thing is because we have a shtick meeting every single gig, every single day at four o'clock. Generally, four o'clock. There's a shtick meeting, and you can't bring shtick to a shtick meeting. So that's the first thing. So you can't you can't bowl into the meeting and start trying to be funny. It's taken very seriously. Right. And the, the stick meeting is generally Jared, um, somebody from the local town that's been provided, which is on the on the rider. They, every show they have to provide us with somebody from the local town or community that can spill the beans on 
local issues of the day. Um, and then Bob Coleman, who's our LD and our stage manager, and they'll generally get together and come up with some shtick for, for tonight. And there's, there's a shtick list. And on that stick list is lots of different jokes and gags and on-stage stuff that we can choose from. And, and it's as important as choosing a set list, you know, within between songs, there's different shtick that we put in. And um, and generally the shtick starts from a good name. So one of the one of the things that Jared does is called Dick Cheney. And that started with just the name Dick Cheney, and you had to work back from there. So you can imagine what that that piece of tomfoolery. <laughs> consists of it's basically Jared pulling a flight case with somebody in it onto the stage with a chain attached to his dick. <laughs> just, just because the name of the stick is called Dick Cheney. Right. So you gotta work your way back. Yeah, and, it, and, and, it, and it's taken really it's taken really seriously. <laughs> but it, it's, it's great because I, I get, you know, I'm old now, so I get lots of rest in between songs. Right. <laughs> when all, all this stuff is happening, you can go and you, know, you can get a beer. Right, right, right. And, and just sort of duck out of it. And uh, we did one called Disappearing Yin because my, my nickname is The Yin. Right. I don't know why. It has been for years. What did you say? You don't know why? Yeah, well, I think it's there's a comedian in the UK called Billy Connolly who is called The Yin. Um, and I don't know why, but... Oh, he's called The Big Yin, sorry, and I'm tall. So I think that's why that name stuck. Really, really bad link. Um, but so the Bloodhound Gang have always known me as The Yin, and most of my friends have. There's only my wife that doesn't call me that, my kids. And um, even my parents call me that. So my twin brother Jason came out on one tour just to hang out throughout Europe. Um, so he did a piece of shtick called Disappearing Yin, which is, um, what's that movie called with um, Christian Dale in it? Uh, I'm, bare, Bale. I'm bare with movies. Uh, he's, he, he's a magician. He's called The, um, the Something. Uh, the Illusionist? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And there's, there's a trick in that that we did. Uh, you need you need a person that looks the same as somebody else to do it. And so in the movie, Christian Bale's got a brother, like I have. Right. So we did we did this thing where I disappear basically into a flight case, and then my twin brother Jason appears at the front of house desk a second later. Nice, dressed in the same outfit. Uh, that was amazing. And we, we did that in some big big venues and festivals. And people just did not know how that works. That's <laughs> a guy just gone through a flight case to front of house in, in literally two seconds. So that was good. And there's, there's lots of uh, some really well thought out stuff. Right. And there's some, there's some not so well thought out stuff that gets you into a lot of trouble in certain regions in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Are you allowed to talk about that or are you forbidden to talk about it? I don't know. I'm not sure what the... Uh, I think we're all right to talk about some of it. I mean, we... We started World War Three, like, right? All right. So let me just let me just preface this this story. With I'm sitting at my house, or actually, I was at my fiance's house, and CNN is on, and I look over, and it says the Bloodhound Gang has been thrown out of Russia and is not allowed to perform there. Yeah, and I'm like, what the hell can possibly be going on that they just got thrown out of Russia? So, so with that lead in, tell us the story. Yeah, so um, we, we we toured last year um, in Europe, and it was one of the best tours we've ever done. Uh, and um, you can ask Harry. Every gig was, every show was amazing. Some big, big, big crowds, big festivals. Everyone got on really well. We had lots of like creature comforts, I suppose. Really beautiful buses, great hotels, nice food. 
um, all that stuff that you appreciate when you get older. Mm-hmm. I suppose sounding like a really old man now, <laughs> and, and 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 the shows are great, and technically everything worked great, and everything looked good, and the crowds are really responsive. We played in places that you know we played before, but a lot of bands don't get to play. So we, we rehearsed for five days in Sofia in Bulgaria, which we always like to do. We always rehearsed in the in the first city of the tour for mm-hmm. five days, and that's really cool. That's one of the things that we've always done. It's a really good way of getting to know the locals. And the local promoters and the local fans and the lo- you know good restaurants and all that kind of stuff. So there's a really good way to start the start the tour was five days in in Bulgaria, which none of us have ever been to before, apart from one show. Um, and then worm our way through Europe, and the the, the shows got bigger and bigger, and we were headlining some big festivals. And then the very last day, um, oh sorry, yeah, the night before I think we played. A weird, kind of a, a really strange... We played in Kiev, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And we played that a bunch of times. Um, stayed at this brand-new hotel, which goodness knows what's happened to that hotel now, right in the middle of... Very near to Independence Square, where all the troubles have been. Um, brand-new Hyatt Regency, it just opened. And we're there for three days. Did the, did the show. Fantastic crowd. Went great. Then we travelled down, flew down to a town called Anapa, which is... Um, on the Black Sea mm-hmm. in, in the Ukraine. And I've never been in the Black Sea before. And it's one of, one of my kind of bucket list things is to swim in every ocean or sea. So I was really pleased. Like, yes, let's go in the sea. And you can ask Harry how cool this show was. It was it was in this place called Ibiza Beach Club. So it looked just like Ibiza. There were just sun lounges and pools. and <laughs> Is that where you guys were playing water polo or something? That was the next day, yeah. <laughs> okay. And so this is this is on the Black Sea, and we just spent the entire day eating lobster, drinking champagne, all for free. Nice. And then we had to play, we had to play a show at night, and the, the show was quite weird. It was in this like holiday resort on the beach. It turns out it was very expensive to get a ticket, uh, all that kind of stuff. It wasn't your traditional bloodhound gang show. It was more of a, I don't know, it was just a weird setup. And it was at that show that Jared. Someone threw a Russian flag on stage. Jared put it down his pants and threw it out into the crowd. That's all he did and said, don't tell Putin. And he does stuff like that all the time. It's one of the things that Bloodhound Gang do. If anything comes on the stage, it goes through Jared's pants and out the other side. Right. It's traditional. Um, had nothing to do with the Russian flag or anything. You know, we, we love Russia. We've been there a lot of times. Um, lots of bands, you know, toured Russia. But Bloodhound Gang were generally one of the first bands to really tour there and tour there and tour there and build up an audience and um so that was that did the show went really well got back to the hotel flew down to moscow the next day um all good got into moscow airport flew to the this town um which is near sochi where the winter olympics were right uh, uh, and this was a final show of the tour and we got put in this really amazing hotel with this big like water park in the middle of it which I think is what you're alluding to with the water polo thing. And we just spent the entire day, me and me and little our tour manager and Harry and Dan and, and Jared Hennigan, we just played water polo all day long. It was amazing. And just sat by the pool. And, and I think I, I remember tweeting at the time, best day off on tour ever. What a great way to end the tour. Nice. And uh, it really was. And we were all like commenting on what a great tour it'd been. And, and then we got in the minibus to take us to the festival, which is about half an hour away. We were headlining it, so we didn't need to get there until 7. We were up, Stage time was 9.30, I think. And as soon as we got in the minibus, 
you could tell that the atmosphere had changed. And there's loads of kind of conversations going on that we weren't really party to, or privy to, I should say. Um, and everyone seemed a little bit frantic in the minibus, like the promoter rep and various people from the festival. And then when we got to the festival, it all seemed quite dark and ominous. It's amazing. It's, it's like the size of Coachella on mm. the beach. You, you know, it was the sun, it was 90 degrees, the sun was setting. Like, what a great gig, what a great show to end the tour. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we just, I remember just getting rounded up by our tour manager and saying, get the hell out of here. We're getting out of here right now. And we got thrown in our little minibus and went back to the hotel. And um, the story were, broke Were you guys there. like, what the hell happened? Yeah, I had no idea. They were mentioning the flag thing. Um, and then, um, oh no, before that, we had to do a press conference and apologize for the flag stunt, which we did. And there was, there was a lot of media there. I mean, like a, a lot, loads and loads of people there. And we were sat behind this table and there was just flash bulbs going off and you know, a proper big media press conference, you know, Lance, Lance Armstrong doping scandal size. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, Jared apologised and then started pouring Jaeger shots for everyone and that was all good. But then it turned sour about half an hour later and we were out of there in a minibus back to the hotel. And then the next day, that same minibus, so we weren't allowed to play the show. That was the end of that. And we thought that was the end of that. And then on the way to, into the airport, we got attacked. So you never played the show, right? Never played the show, yeah. Right. And, and they said you had to leave Russia? Uh, at that point, no. Oh, okay. Uh, and maybe to other people, but I didn't, I didn't know that. So what was the reason that you couldn't play the festival? They just didn't want you playing it anymore? I think they got a message from the Interior Ministry to say that Bloodhound Gang are not playing that show. If you put them on the show, you'll lose your festival. We'll, we'll bankrupt you. Okay. Um, so they wouldn't put us on. I got you. And at this point, we were all over the news. I had no idea because I don't watch the Russian news. But we were like, imagine like, you know, CNN constantly on rotation, our faces. And and this story about the, the, the flag that happened in the Ukraine. And and we we don't really understand the Ukraine-Russian tension. And we do we do a lot more now after what's happened in the past six months there. But there's obviously a lot of tension between those two nations and... Um, that may have had some parts to play in it, I don't know. But the next day when we got to the airport to fly out of there to Moscow to get the flight home to London or to New York or Philly or wherever, um, we got attacked on the mini, in the minibus on the way into the airport by like a mob throwing bricks and tomatoes and all kinds of stuff at the van, which really? is a first. That's a first. And then when we got into the airport and got into a little VIP sort of section, airside, we checked in. Suddenly the door got burst open and Cossacks in full army uniform burst in and just tried to beat the hell out of everyone. Really? Yeah. Uh, you can still see that on YouTube, I think. They won't take it down. So you type, you know, if you type the right things in, that'll come up. And um, and then we got held at that airport for nine hours and we weren't allowed out and they closed the airport and then they sent us like a SWAT team to Wait a minute, wait, wait. They closed the whole airport? Yeah, yeah. It was insane. And at this point, we all got onto our embassies. So we all called, I called the UK embassy, the Germans called the Germans, blah, 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 Canadians, Americans. And all the embassies knew what was going on. They all worked together to try and get us out there. And slowly, after nine hours of all kinds of stuff, which, which you know, I won't go into, it was insane. We got out of there and got to Moscow. And when we got to Moscow, 
we were led away and detained. Uh, and then we were all um, deported on various flights. So we got out via Istanbul and Prague and all, all the kind of places. But by that point, it was a huge story. But we, we had no idea. About, you know, when we got to Moscow and we got met off the plane with the, by the police, that was it. And as far as I was concerned, it was pussy right, you know. We weren't going to get back home for five years, trial without jury. Right. I'm not going to see my wife and kids for a long time type thing. So I was absolutely shit. I was terrified. I don't mind admitting it. I was terrible. Our tour manager was amazing, super calm, dealt with everything that was put in front of him, didn't exaggerate the story and didn't 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 deal with anything that wasn't there to be dealt with or, or worry about stuff that wasn't there. And I was the opposite. I was just running around like a headless chicken. <laughs> I was a I was a guy that you know those like disaster films like Titanic. Right. Is always someone who tries to get on the boat before the wife and before the women and children. <laughs> right. I was that. <laughs> I, look, I look back now and just disgust <laughs> about the way that you know under pressure what happens to me as a person. Uh, so yeah, definitely one of those <laughs> one of those things that I need to work on. I don't think that I would be too calm if if I, you know you would think that when you see. I guess so. What are the what are the Cossacks? Are they the is that the police? No, this is this is like a sort of yeah, like a militant mi- group. Yeah, a militant group that that is that are autonomous to a certain region, and don't think that region should be even part of Russia, let alone part of wherever they want it to be. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know really where they come from and much about them. But I know it's a, it's a, it's quite a you know the Cossacks are. Traditionally, a Russian movement of people that were that were warriors, and and, uh, and they're still very much alive and kicking today, and Jeez. want want certain things. And a lot of them have got a lot to do with Putin, and a lot of them are from Moscow, and 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 now live down there and want that area to become its own like little enclave, I suppose. Right. It's just a, it's just nuts. I'm sure that you see these people, and you're like, oh, these people are here to protect us, almost. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was horrendous, uh, but. It's awful because we've been good at Russia for a long time, and it, you know, it, it's it's just not nice to see how it's changed. And it used to be very open for business, and you, you, I didn't get that feeling this time. You know, there's a lot of homophobia going on, lots of issues. You know, people oh, really? went to Olympics because of it. You know, and I don't know, it's it's strange. And you look at the World Cup that's just happened in Brazil and how great it's been. You think, well, the next one's in Russia. Mm. I mean, four years time, they've got to get their act together. Right. Um, oh, no one's going to go. <laughs> yeah. We won't be going, that's for sure. Hmm. Uh, yeah, we'll, we won't be going back there in a hurry, which now, is a real shame. That's that's a crazy story, though, man. Yeah, we've got great fans there. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, yeah some of the shows are fantastic. And, so you know, are you guys not allowed back in Russia? Currently, no. No? <laughs> At this point, no. At this point, no. Or, or the Ukraine, I think. Jeez. Now, you had mentioned... Um, that you were, you know, you were afraid that you weren't going to see your wife and kids again. And I was going to ask you about that. I always see pictures of of you and and your beautiful wife and your beautiful kids. And so what do you, so what do you guys do? You guys travel a lot? Cause I always see you guys, um, I get, you have like a, it looks like an old, uh, not an old, but like a, a VW bus yeah. and you guys just tra- travel around. Not as much as we like. It's, 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 I'm looking at it right now in my driveway covered in rain. <laughs> it's so bad for it because it's, it's a Californian import. So until we got our hands on it, it never even seen rain. It's from it was from Southern California. I got you. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a vintage 1976 um, Westphalia uh, Bay 
T2 Bailey. Nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, we love it. And it's great to get our festivals in. and um, Yeah, it's brilliant. We've always wanted one, and we, we took a long time to try and find one. But we have to find the, you know, the pop top with a, with a double bed that comes over for the kids and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's just cool. I always see I always see these pictures of you guys like at the beach and and different yeah. places with this with this camper. It just looks cool, so I figured I'd ask you about it. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's weird. we live right on the beach, so ah uh, okay. My house is opposite. There's a, there's like a, a row of shops, and then behind that is a train line, and then the beach. Um, okay. It's, it's London's nearest beach, so we're forty minutes from London. Okay. But yeah, five minutes away. There's some really nice beaches. Um, and we, we go, you know, we go to festivals in it. So we're doing Latitude Festival and Reading and Leeds and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good weekend car. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool, man. So let's talk about this this newest venture that you have, and that is Band App, where it's basically a, a way for bands to make their own apps. And there's a lot of other things that that are involved with it. So can you give us a little bit of backstory and information about that? Yeah, it's just from from touring really. So from seeing the way that. You communicate with your fans on, on tour and becoming more excited as you, as I get older about technology and about Apple technology in, in particular. I've always been a big Apple fan. And and when the App Store launched, I got really excited. I thought it was a really I thought it was a new Wild West. You could, you know, it's a really good opportunity. People could go and, and make a lot of money there, which they did. Um, but as it became more congested and, and more apps appeared. I started to think it'd be great to create a place where a website that you can go and make an app for free without anyone saying yes or no, without anyone policing it, without anyone, without any barrier to entry. Um, and then let's make our own app store so that when you make your app, it sits with other like-minded apps. So it's just the music apps. And those music apps sit in our own app store where music fans can find them. And then that app store sits on desktop. It also sits in every band app that's created. So that's the whole idea. The whole idea was to make to start start a startup that that was like as a website to go and build you an app instantly for free, hmm. and that's what Band App does. And then from that, we've we had a few false starts, um, learned a lot, learned an awful lot. Um, uh, started again two years ago. So we launched October two years ago into beta, and we're still in beta now. So we're just about to come out of beta or beta, as you guys say. Um, with our version two, but we also do lots of apps using band. Lots of festivals use band app now. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. For festivals, so we have Reading Festival, Leeds Festival, Latitude, Electric Picnic, Mayor of London, uh, Rock the House, which is a sort of parliamentary festival for MPs in the UK. So we do lots of sort of government stuff and, and, and mayoral stuff as well. So some big partners. Nice. Yeah, it's good, and uh, yeah, it's. We're, I think we're the, we're the biggest app store for music. So. It's great. So anybody listening to this that's a musician or a drummer or is in a band, go to bandapp.com and, and build an app for free. And uh, and then we can feature you and we can we can get you started. And we have a lot of major labels check us out and, and call us every week and TV shows that, that look at our feature artists and see who's doing well. Um, and from that, we can, we can really start to help our artists grow and we're going to open up lots of opportunities for our artists to license their music and get it out there and become a bit of a, you know, a mobile record label for artists, I suppose. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, so could you, you could do this as a, as a person and as a band, correct? Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. So we got, we got quite a few celebrities, even hairdressers that use it. There's, you know, photographers, 
Could I make one for the for drummer's resource? I guess I could, huh? Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. And brands can make it. You know, you can you can you can make one for the brand. Um, we're going to get to a situation hopefully where where we'll have like a brand shelf so that when brands make brand apps, you can decide as a band whether you want to drop that brand app into your app and then be paid whatever advertising deal we've got pro rata with that brand directly into your PayPal account. So little things like that we're trying to look at doing. We're just, we're just trying to figure out ways of artists to make money uh, being an artist away from the traditional methods of you know, selling MP3s. Right, right, right. But, but using band apps to do that. So, yeah. It, but, you know, there's a, there's a real consumer side to it as well. We've got a thing called Record Books, which sits inside every band app. So it's not just a tool for artists. It's a tool for consumers. So you can, you can open any, any um, band app up and go to record box and you can create your own record box you can drag in all your favorite band apps into one place and then your record box can be followed and you can follow other people's very much like instagram the way that works um and that's 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 looking really good and and he's getting a lot of traction so yeah it's exciting that's awesome man hard work it's hard work but it's it's exciting rewarding to be doing something that is I, i never wanted to be one of these kind of you know, you get, you get to a certain age and you've had a good time in music and you've seen the way the world used to be. Um, it's very easy to, to lament, lament about the old days and when people used to pay, you used to go on tour and you get tour support or you'd be able to go and do, you know, £150,000 budget videos in South Africa and we've had all that and, and we bitched and moaned about it at the time and, <laughs> like, all <laughs> Uh, you know, or if I were, you know, we'd been, you know, had a record deal ten years earlier, we'd been the size of Led Zeppelin, and but you look back now, you think, thank goodness that we were around at that point, and we got spoiled. We really did, and um, I never want to be want to be one of these bitter old musicians that looks back and wants music to be the way it was because it can't be. It's changed, it's changed drastically over the last five ten years, and there's no going back. And and um, so I started Band App really to make sure that I'd, we're doing something that's forward facing. And he's looking to the future and looking, you know, looking to give opportunities in the new digital landscape. Because for every door that's closed in music and, you know, for all the, all the bad stuff that's potentially happened, lots of really exciting new stuff has come to the fore. Um, so, yeah, it's harder than ever to get a record deal, but you don't really need one. Right. Um, you know, that's the beauty harder, of it. Yeah, it's harder than ever to get, you know, to make video, to make your album because studios are closing. But you don't really need one because you can make music for five, you can make an album for two grand now. Know, right, it's not expensive anymore. Um, so the way music has been created has never changed. You know, people sitting around a campfire with guitars is still the way music can be created these days. The way music is 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 recorded has changed dramatically, and the prices can write down, the barriers can write down. That's great. The way music is distributed has changed dramatically because you can distribute it yourself for free, and the way music is consumed has changed beyond all recognition. You know, my my kids. Just look at YouTube. That's how they consume consume music. They don't even use Spotify. They just YouTube is their only resource. They don't want to own an MP3, let alone a CD, let alone an album. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the last thing that hasn't changed is the way that bands are paid to license their music to be played in locations like Subway or Starbucks or do you know what I mean? Or banks or cruise ships. Those old collection agencies still exist, and that is a way that music is collected and they, and then there's royalties are distributed by a, by a membership. And, and we think that's right for disruption. And um, 
we want to we want to get in there and, and help emerging artists get their music out there and get it played in various locations and get paid directly. So that's one of the ways we're looking to monetize the way that Bandap works for both our artists and for ourselves. Yeah, that was my next question. That if if is it's free for everybody to use. Yeah. Um, so what? So how does the company make money? <laughs> well, um, yeah, you know, typical startup. We rely on investors, right? Uh, and, and and our investors know that with scale, Bandak could be huge, um, because once you've got a really engaged, retentive user base, which is something that music fans are, mm-hmm. can, if you've got if you've got their attention, it can generate a lot of money from advertising and from elsewhere. Sure. Um, so it's a little bit of a you know we're funded via 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 investment like most startups. Um, and we also see you know, quite a lot of revenue this year from, from, using our pros, from using the submissions process of BandApp to build competitions and to build partnerships. And also, we, we, you know, we, we get paid for building festival apps and that kind oh, of okay. stuff. Okay. So we're, we're making decent revenue. Um, but with scale, BandApp could potentially make a lot of money. You know, we, right. we, we get to 100, 100 million users. Because you know what's great about BandApp is they're all all our users are connected. So all our, all our band apps are, they're not lonely islands as I describe apps generally. If, if you go, you know, if you make an app for your brand now, someone's going to find it. With, with band app, all apps talk to each other and connect to each other. So it becomes one big sort of social network on, 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 on mobile. And, and, you know, if we get that to scale, then there's, there's obviously great, a great deal you can do mm-hmm. to generate mm-hmm. income from that. For both for both the company and for our artists, absolutely. I think it's a hell of an idea, man. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I really do. So, yeah. was this this was originally your idea? Yeah, yeah, correct. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it's yeah, it's it's turned into a bit of a monster, which is good. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, various challenges along the way. But we, you know, we we've got a real clear vision of where we want to go with it and what we want to do with it, and it's it's quite exciting. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I, wish, I wish you the best of luck with that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah let us know if you know. Is any artist that you guys want to to us to feature? Just let them know to build a band up, and we can help them and feature them. And yeah, and, awesome. and push it up. Yeah, and it's just so they can just go, and the people could just go to bandapp.com and then build their own Correct. app for their bands. And that's yeah. great, man, because you know apps are expensive. They are expensive, and also once you make them, you've got somebody potentially a gatekeeper somewhere that says no. You right. can't do that. You can't do this. Uh, and to get on the app store, you need, you know, it's a three week wait if it's busy or it's a five day wait if it's if it's not busy. Um, and then you got to build one for Android and you got to build one for Windows and all that stuff. With band app, band apps, they're mobile HTML HTML five web apps. They work across you know Android and across iPhone, right. um, and they work instantly, and they all connect together. That's a, that's a, that's a real USB. You know, you can find any of the band app from within your band app. That's that's cool. I'm actually um, getting on here now to download it because I want to check it out. I want to check yeah. it out in more detail, man, and do something for, for Drummer's Resource too. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, let, let me know if it can help and we can feature that and push it. Oh, that'd be great, man. Yeah. So what advice do you have for for musicians that are out there now? Because now you need to be entrepreneurial to, to succeed in this business. It can't – I don't – I don't think unless you're in a major band that you can really sustain yourself um, 
with just touring or just doing session work and stuff like that, because a lot of that work is drying up like we had talked about. So what's your advice for, for people that are coming up now that want to make a career in the music industry? I think network yourself without, I mean, a bit of a saying where I live in Essex is without being new, if you know what I mean. So without being new and shiny new and getting under people's, getting under people's skin and, and getting on their nerves, network yourself, put yourself out there, um, but know when to hold back, know when to not get on people's nerves. Um, and use all the tools that are out there to help. So BandApp is just one of many tools, as we know, there's Reverb Nation, there's Bandcamp, there's, there's YouTube, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram. There's a, there's a whole plethora of, of digital resources out there that can help you distribute your music, help you create your music, and help people find you. The problem is, with, with that massive glut of noise out there it's harder than ever to get noticed because there's no real filter so you still need to be filtered somehow you still need to get on radio or try to get on radio you still need someone to shout about you in press or on blogs and that becomes harder than ever it really is a bit of a bun fight because you know there there is no barrier so anyone can make lousy music and get it out there whereas traditionally in the old days there's an A&R guy that say no right beat it this is not great now there's no one to say that to you, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it creates a lot of noise. Um, so it's hard than ever to try to write, write, rise above the noise. And, and what I always say when I talk about this stuff is network yourself, sell yourself, use all the tools that are out there. But the most important thing, and it will never change, it never has changed in 100 years, and I can't see it changing in the future anytime soon, is it's still all about the songs. So if your songs suck and they don't sound great. No one's going to care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many Twitter followers you've got. It doesn't matter how big your Facebook presence is. It doesn't matter how good your videos are, how much money you're throwing at them, and how many YouTube views you've had. No, no one's going. No one's going to care right. unless your songs are great. So I always try and encourage people to just you know work on the songs first. Get three amazing songs, and don't don't do a thing until you've got those three amazing songs. Then worry about your Twitter account, and then worry about Facebook. Um, and I think back in the old days, people used to go to a venue, and this is not a good thing, but they'd try and find the local drug dealer straight away. It'd be the first question they'd ask. Now a band gets to a venue, it, the first question they ask is, what's the Wi-Fi code? Right. Because bands need to be proactive. They need to. Once you've got those three songs, you need to get onto Twitter, get onto Facebook, get onto YouTube, get onto BandApp, and use all those digital resources that are out there um, and, and you're absolutely right, Nick. You need one guy in the band to take hold of that and, and to be that digital arm of the band. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a full-time role. It really is. You can't just sit there and wait for sound check and, and, and um, you know, wait, wait, wait for stuff to happen. You've got to make it happen online uh, and you've got to cultivate an audience. But once you've got an audience and you've got 100 super fans that are willing to pay you money, you can quickly turn that 100 super fans into 1,000 fans. And once you've got 1,000 fans, you've got a career. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. If, if those 1,000 people spend $10 with you, then you've made enough money to sustain yourself. Right. Um, and that can happen quite easily once you've got the right songs. And once people are prepared to pay and come and see you live, you know, that $10 will be an MP3. It might be a CD. It might be some vinyl. It might be a T-shirt. But you, you know you can you can build that audience up from from family and friends to a hundred quite slowly. Those first hundred fans take a long time, but when you get to a hundred, 
it's a matter of scale until you get to about a thousand. And once you've got a thousand, it can become your profession. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's the old, uh, the theory, a thousand true fans is what you really need to sustain a career at whatever you're, whatever you're doing. Yeah. And, and, and you've got to use every single trick in the book to keep those people engaged. Right. And they need, they need to feel engaged. That's what's great about Kickstarter and about Pledge and about those, those crowd raising, crowdfunding websites mm-hmm. is that you have to, you're using your engaged audience to fuel your career. Right. Right from the very word go that, you know, they're, they're part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you don't use those sites, your fan base should be part of the process anyway. And you should never forget them. You should keep in contact with them constantly. And that's where Bandap can really help. And, uh, and other sites like, you know, like Bandcamp and, and Bandpage, they're amazing for that. So there's lots of great tools out there, but I suppose the moral of the story is those great tools don't matter if your songs are lousy. Right. So, and that's never going to change. You, mm-hmm. you know, you know if, if the Beatles came out today, it'd be hard for them. But you know, unless they released great songs, right. and, uh, and obviously they did that, so they, they would succeed. Um, but if the Beatles came out and released crap songs, no one would care. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still, it's still, it's still all about songs. It really is. You can. He can spot a good song from within the first 10, 15 seconds. You know, you know if an artist has got it, you know if his song is great. And that stuff comes with learning your craft and sitting down and writing and writing and recording and demoing. And, and, and that's the other thing, learning how to record so that you can save money. You don't have to go to a studio. You can do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the, you know, the wave of the future now. Yeah, totally. And, and I think even in, even in the crew side of it, you know, you look at Bloodhound Gang's crew, most of those guys could be could do front of house or they could do tour managing or they could do ticking or they could do stage managing or they, they all know each other's roles and jobs. Because um, there's a really good saying on tour that doors open at 7 o'clock. It doesn't matter what happens. At 7 p.m., doors open. Mm-hmm. You've got to be ready. There's nothing you can do. So everyone pulls together. Right. And, and it's a really good thing for when you're running a startup like Bandap to have that ingrained in you that everyone's got to pull together to make this thing work. And it's the same with a band. You've got, you've got, to, you've got to get out there and you've got to work it and pull together. And one member of the band has got to become the social mouthpiece on, online digitally. The other guy in the band has got to book gigs, but you've all got to write decent songs. Yeah. The cream, the cream always rises to the top and it, you know, it always has, but now it's just a different, it's a different path that it's taking to get to the, to the top. Yeah. There's no more, there's no more gatekeepers like we had talked about. And there's not the A&R guy that's going to tell you, nope, your music's not going to get heard. And guess what? That means not, none of your music's going to get heard. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and radio is, is, is losing its grip. So that's less important. You know, YouTube's almost a radio channel. Mm-hmm. So people, people can find you, but they're not, it's never going to go viral. It's never going to be a hit unless people start talking about it. And they're not going to start talking about it unless it's good. Right. And then I suppose the hardest thing now is getting an agent. It's, a booking agent is almost harder than getting a record deal, mm-hmm. you know, because that's where bands can traditionally make money now is touring and everyone knows that. So one of the last great sources of revenue for a band and that becomes a real challenge, you know, getting shows and booking shows becomes difficult. Yeah. What, what's that, your suggestion for getting a booking agent? Cause I know that, you know, even older bands that I played in, we always were try. I remember the challenge of us getting our booking agents. Yeah. And uh, so what advice do you have for that? It's, it's hard because I've been out of the loop for so long on that because I've never had to worry about it that I don't really know, to be completely honest. I, I'm not really the best person to ask because 
I've had 20 years where I've not had to worry about that. Right. Um, you know, it, it's, it's more difficult than ever. I, I know that. And I think one of the things that people overlook, in the UK it might be different, but having a lawyer in the UK is massive. And bands tend to overlook that. But if, if you're getting yourself known by a, by a legal firm that know loads of agents and then know loads of publishers and know loads of labels, they'll spread the word like wildfire because they want to get paid. They want to do a deal somewhere. And that's always a good route that people don't really think about. I mean, you know, I know lawyers in the UK now that are A&R. They really are. They're, they're as big as they're, they're some of the most successful A&R men in the country because they've spotted talent early on and they've become the lawyer for that talent. Right. And um, Which is quite strange to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they're generally a good, good way of finding an agent. Um, and, and opening for acts is good because, you'll, you know, you'll generally open for an act in, say, London, and the agent will be there that acts, so you can you end up playing to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, it, I don't know, it, that is difficult. Mm-hmm. Get, getting a good booking agent is very difficult. And then making that booking agent work when they know they're not going to make any money for a year or two or three or four is really difficult. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Yeah. Is, you know, it's it's one thing if you're changing from one booking agent to another or something like that, but like getting the first one is that's a it's a Pretty. tough game. But you know what? I think it all comes back to what you were saying before that, hey, if you have good songs, you know, then people are going to come. And if you have good and if people are coming, then people are, are going to book you. Yeah, so. it's, all, it's all about those good songs. I mean, really, is you, you should be a strict strip songs down and play around the campfire. And, and there should be great songs. There should be a knock your head off. And then you can go in the studio and you can, you know, put great fills around it and great drum drum parts and and solos and, and really craft it. And one of the things that we did with, with A, which Jason, my twin brother, is now a big record producer. He still laments to all the bands that he, he works with is it's not over until it's got a barcode on it. Right. So like, don't worry about it. I mean, you know, you you might be going on tour the next day, you might want to get your song finished. Don't worry about it, it's not over. And until someone's prepared to pay for it. It's not finished. So take that chorus that you think is a world beater and park it somewhere and write a better chorus. Mm-hmm. And if you can't write a better chorus, go and go grab the old one. It doesn't matter. You know, but it's not over until you've got that fantastic song that people are prepared to part with money for. And um, something we did a lot with A, you know, I think our big song, Nothing, the chorus for that was was um, the, the mid-eight. Sorry the, sorry, the bridge was the old chorus. And we okay, that's great. Let's let's, let's write a better chorus, and then the old chorus became the bridge because we wrote a better one. And um, and yeah, some bands get really precious, especially you know I get demos a lot these days still. And people don't even call them demos anymore; they call them albums. You know, it's like, hey man, listen listen to my album. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a thank you list, two hundred, you know, lines long of thanking everyone they know, like it's a proper album. And you just want to sometimes say, fellas, this is not an album yet. This is a demo. Right. <laughs> it, should, it should be just a demo, you know, you know, because it's, it's not there yet. Don't right. treat it like it's finished. Treat it like it's work in progress. Until someone tells you this is finished, this is ace, go and sell it. We'll play it on radio. And um, and you'll know when that time is. You know, you can't force that. You'll know when, when three or four people start shouting about it and start saying this is great, then you know it's time to put a barcode on it and, 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 and sell it. Right. That's that's great advice, man. That really is. So listen up, everybody out there. The songs matter. It's all about not, it's all about songs. It really is all about the music. And it's gonna it's and that's what it is. It's the, you know it's it's the music business. So it is about the music and it's about yeah. 
And it's about, like you said, networking and, and promoting yourself and, and doing the work and going out there for yourself and, yeah. uh, and, and going to make it happen. And I think these days as well, more than ever, is realizing that this is potentially not going to change your world financially. So really do it for the love of it. You know, do it for the, for the hang, hanging out with your mates and getting in a van and traveling to Florida or wherever you're going to go. And have a good time doing it because it's a, it's a proper laugh. It really is. It's a, it's a really good thing to do. You know, doing a road trip and then playing a show at the end of it is, is amazing. It doesn't matter how big your band is, whether you're touring in Learjets or you're, you're touring in some, you know, cracked out old car. It's still a great time. And um, just doing that for the live of it is, is an amazing thing. And, um, and, and, and you know, realising that you're not potentially going to get a six, seven-figure record deal, but, you know, just do it for the fun of it. And if, and if you're doing the right things and, you, and, you, and you're playing the right shows, then, yeah, maybe one day you could make some money out of it and it could become your profession. But if you're not doing it for the love of it to start with, if you're doing it for finance, financial gain, you are completely in the wrong industry. Yeah, I totally agree. As we all know. Yeah. And you way, can, way easier ways to make money. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot easier ways and a lot more surefire ways to do oh, it yeah. too. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, I mean, you know, working, if you're chasing the money, go ahead, sorry, what were you going to say? You know, working in a, in a fast food rest, fast food restaurant, it will bring you a lot more money than being in a band will. <laughs> yeah. It really will. And um, but you know, you have more fun hopefully with your friends in a car traveling to Tampa. Right. Just throwing up any old town there. It, it is fun, man. It's a, yeah. You know, like you said, no matter what level of touring you're doing, it's still fun. Yeah, it really is. And once it starts becoming fun, then do something else until it becomes fun again. Right. So, you know, it's, it's got to be, everything you do has got to be fun. If you don't enjoy it, you're not going to do it well. I agree. I agree. Well, Adam, thank you so much for, for taking all this time to chat with us today, man. I really do That's appreciate okay. it. And the info was, was great because it, it tied into a lot of the business things and the entrepreneurial things that, that, um, that I like to talk about because yeah, like we said, man, that's, that's super important that people understand that that there's a whole other side of what you need to do other than you're playing. So I'm glad we talked a lot about that. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate all the insight and for, and for you taking the time to talk today. Okay, mate. Yeah, no, no problems. It's, it's been great. And um, just apologies for my voice and for the speed. Oh, stop. Of it. Every, uh, everything sounded good. One day I'll make a lot of money out of being a pirate somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> just going, <"Arr." laughs> So if they if they want to find out more information about you and about BandApp, just go to bandapp.com. Is that the best place to go? Exactly, yeah. www.bandapp.com. Okay. And uh, yeah, build as many apps as you want and spread the word. There you go, man. Adam, thank you again. I really do appreciate it, man. I'll be talking to you soon. Great stuff. Thanks, Nick. All right, thanks. See ya. Bye-bye. Man, what an interesting dude. Like, he just has it's, it's amazing story. That Bloodhound Gang story is just ridiculous about the airport. I, I can't get over that story. And I knew the story, but, like, never really sat down and listened to it and recorded it like that. And it's it blows my mind. It's just a crazy story. And check out BandApp. It's awesome. I was talking to Adam and said, you know, I'm going to download this, and I've been working on it a little bit. It's not up yet. Well, actually, I guess it's up, but I didn't do all the updates to it yet. But it's a really cool thing, so check that out, BandApp.com. Like I said, if you want to get the ebook, Stick Control Variations, it's typically $9.99. You can get it for free 
at drummersresource.com. All you have to do is sign up for the mailing list, which is also 100% free, and you'll get that delivered right to your inbox immediately, courtesy of me. Check us out at drummersresource.com, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource, at drummersresource on Instagram, and at drummersrsource on Twitter. And big thanks to Chris Coolis from OAR. I appreciate him having us out this past weekend to check them out at the PNC Art Center in Homedale, New Jersey. We had an excellent time, man, and you guys killed it. So, Chris, if you're listening, thank you so much for the hospitality. We really do appreciate it. And for everybody else out there, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you ever have any questions or if there's anything I can ever do for you, email me, nick at drummersresource.com. And until next time, keep drumming. Thank you so much. I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.